Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to discuss the second episode of the HBO series, The White Lotus, Mike White's darkly funny series about class, death, and choking on a bug on the back of a Vespa. Which would be me. <laughs> if, I were, if I were ever foolish enough to get on a Vespa. Okay, I'd be on the front, you'd be on the back. Full bugs. Dressed <laughs> as Monica Beattie, yeah, yeah. inhaling Scratching bugs. my tongue. Mm, mm, I see it. I see that for us. <laughs> the episode we're talking about today is episode two, Italian Dream. Other than Vespa bugs, we have Portia and Albie going on a dinner together and having a kind of intense conversation yeah. about sex and gender, but... They don't really realize that's the conversation they're having, maybe. Uh, We have poor Dominic falling deeper into the well of what might be sex addiction. We have possibly some sort of plot involving Tanya and Greg, which could lead us to more discussion about who dies. Yes. Uh, And then we have a conversation that you did with Beatrice Grano. Yes, I talked to the actress that plays Mia about her big musical moment, which might involve a Haim sister. It's kind of crazy. Gotta stay tuned for Haim. So, Chris, let's talk about the episode kind of in a broader sense before we get into the details of it. Um, for me, and maybe you disagree, I think the kind of thesis part of this episode is when Portia and Albie are at dinner. Mm. And, of course, Portia's keeping an eye on Tanya in the corner, <laughs> having yet another meltdown. Um, and they're talking kind of guardedly at first about, like, I think they're trying to suss each other out. Like, are you single? Like, what Mm -hmm. kind of people do you like? Light flirting is happening. Yeah. And Portia um, goes on this kind of 
fraught monologue about like how she's sick of TikTok and Bumble mm. and she wants someone who's ignorant of the discourse and she needs to up her meds and <laughs> she just wanna like has like wants to have adventure. Yes. And she wants a caveman. She basically right. she, yes. basically, and, she basically wants a caveman. I just wanna have fun. Mm. I just wanna I don't know, feel like fulfilled and have an adventure and like I'm sick of fucking TikTok and and Bumble and just screens and apps and sitting there binging Netflix and I just I just want to like live. I just want to live my life so badly. I just feel like I just want to meet someone who's like, you know, totally ignorant of the discourse, you know? Right. Right, like like someone who lives in a cave. Like a caveman. Yeah, I, yeah, I would date a caveman at this point. <laughs> I mean, I think you could aim higher. Honestly, I think you could do better than a caveman. And right there, I think, is where this relationship seems to be turning, which is like there was a mutual attraction, mm-hmm. but complex matters of like life in the 21st century, gender dynamics as they exist now, mm-hmm. like come to bear on this. And you kind I mean, here's what I think. Yeah. I think Portia is like, I hate that I want this kind of like asshole that. Albie has just described, mm-hmm. and yet that promises more adventure than this nice kid next to me, across from me does. He's trying to be sort of this perfect, you know, uh, Gen Z appropriate, you know, woman loving, consenting man. The that, opposite of his dad. The opposite of his dad. Yeah. Which it, it, as you said, it seems like it's not exactly what Portia wants. She wants a caveman. She wants somebody who's away from the discourse. And Albie's whole personality is sort of shaped by the discourse <laughs> right, in right. a weird way. Right. Um, and yet. Uh, I know I'm still rooting for them. I mean, and then you see the kiss at the end, right? You know, yeah. he like asks for consent to kiss her, which, while very sweet in some ways, that's not like the sexiest way to have a first kiss, right? Right. right. It's tricky, and I think that White is such a good writer because he's sharp and satirical about these dynamics, but sensitive to both sides mm-hmm. as well. Like, you know, he he understands where Porsche's coming from in terms of like everything feels so clinical and safe and yes. sterile and like. And and so kind of preordained in a way, like you have to behave this set of this set of ways in order for things to be. Yes, that's what the culture is dictating right. right now. And you know, and you get that feeling that like where where is the old adventure? Like where is the kind of transgress transgressiveness of mm-hmm. the past? Um, and on the other side, you have Albie, who's like, yeah, I mean, like, what is he supposed to do? He's a young man in the world who's receiving all of these signals yes. about like the problems of male behavior, toxic masculinity. And so he's doing what a conscientious person kind of does in that situation, which is like listen and yeah, learn. He's li- he's listening and learning, yeah. and yet it's completely nice guys finish last, which is sort yeah. of like I don't think that's necessarily the thesis that Mike White believes, and I don't think, as you said, I think he does a really great job of being fair to both sides. Like he doesn't come down as like Porsche's right to want a caveman or Albie's right to want to be sort of a more evolved, you know, man in the world. But these two things are at tension with each other, sort of you know being politically correct or like culturally sensitive and and engaging women like you know humans and the individuals with respect that they are and also a very real sexual carnal desire to just sort of like you know fuck for lack right, of right. a better yeah. word yeah. with somebody who isn't necessarily the most respectful or politically correct or you know who's not checking all the boxes in that way and wh- where better to do the vulgar word you just said. Um, <laughs> Sorry. At, in fucking Sicily at this beautiful hotel with this random cute guy <sighs> you just met. And it's like, 
here is the moment where you fall into this sort of like roll in the hay kind of mindset. I mean, what is more of a fantasy than that? It made me think about the opening credits. Ah, okay, how so? um, Start with these kind of like pastoral pastoral frescoes or whatever that's sort of supposed to be emulating. And then as the music that drop, that beat drops, Mm, 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 as the beat drops, then you start to see these more carnal little scenes a blowjob, a stabbing, something, you know, a woman, a man ravaging a woman. Like, it gets sexier, but also more sort of base and fully carnal. Which seems to be kind of what this season thus far is about, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I think we also, if we want to switch gears over to uh, Ethan and Harper, Whew. we see that a similar sort of conversation unfolding. So w- what for you really stuck out with them this week? I mean, what stuck out, I'm, I'm thinking about Ethan and his sort of midday, mid-morning. Right, right. <laughs> um, Post-exercise. Uh, jerk-off um, yeah. session. Um, but that did really stick out um, in terms of explaining their relationship. They also have some trouble connecting, right? The great thing about Harper and the great thing about Aubrey Plaza as an actress, which I think she's doing such great work, is that she never really exactly says what she means. Like, she's very she's very honest and very forthcoming, but you can always, like, read her subtext so well and sort of her disappointment that, you know, instead of, you know, and she actually does say this, that Ethan would rather you know, pull up internet computer porn rather than like wait for her to have sex, that sort of prickliness and yet her inability to sort of like be the type of woman who would like have sex with him. Like, I don't believe right, that, like, right. you know, had she been there and he came back, I could see her being like, ew, get away from me, go shower. You know, right. it's that sort of like those competing impulses of being like, she wants to be the type of woman, maybe a little bit like Daphne, who she does sort of disparage, but who's like free and easy and like can just have morning sex and whatnot. But she's not that type no. of woman. No. And that's such a great sort of um, dichotomy there. You know, we have these multiple scenes with Daphne and Cameron where Harper just can't help herself. She can't. And says, I'm not materialistic or, you know, having a kid, you know, bringing a child into this world, like basically mm-hmm. insulting yeah. her you know, her, her companions lie. Yeah, so like sort of to their face, but like in a way without right. sort of directly being like, I think less. Of and it. catching herself. Yes, and being you like, know. Uh, is, is aware of what she's doing and like is trying to fight that impulse, but like can't. I think Harper's sort of disdain for this sort of, for Cameron and Daphne um, and this couple that just seems to, you know, be, as she says, seems to be not truthful, seems to be lying about how, you know, easy breezy their relationship is mm-hmm. and like, or putting up a front or putting up a facade, right? I do think that her disdain comes from a very real and sort of normal place of being like, these people have everything that like I don't. They're everything that I'm not in a way. And like I have to poke holes in that to sort of justify the way that I am in the world and the way that I exist in the world. It's hard to (laughs) to say that Cameron's not an asshole when we see him screaming at employees for, you know, for sending his bags home and then him hitting on Harper yeah. in the middle of the ocean. I mean, that was ridiculous. I don't trust Cam- I think Cameron and Harper, what did you think about uh, him sort of grabbing her leg in the middle of the ocean and sort of swimming out? Like, that yeah. was a little... Well, we still don't know why Cameron and um, Daphne invited these people on the trip. We yeah. assume, as Harper does, that it has something to do with this new money. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, we could maybe extrapolate a little bit further that Cameron, as much as he keeps shit-talking Harper behind her back, like, he can't alienate this newly very rich guy. Oh, he can't alienate his absolutely wife. Absolutely you know. So maybe, that I think that maybe Cameron has no idea how to interact with women that isn't either disdain or 
that. Yes, <laughs> or, or hitting on full it. on horniness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think, and the funny thing about that is that, like, and I think this kind of nicely ties into the Porsche stuff that we just talked about. Is that scene at the end when uh, Cameron and Daphne are in their room, and she says the thing about, "I think that sometimes w- mm-hmm. women cut their husbands' balls mm-hmm. off, and then." don't find them sexy anymore and don't understand why. And you're like, and that is, I think maybe something of what Portia is sort of starting to wrap her head around this idea of like, how much do you kind of beta your guy or whatever. (laughs) Um, But clearly that communicates to me that Daphne, what does the cutting the balls off imply? Like, or what does having the balls still intact imply? It's like, go get it. Like that kind of aggression, that male aggression, which like, hopefully is not physical, but like certainly in pursuit of money or business or whatever. So I kind of wonder like, what does Daphne know about the reason for this trip? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, is she just along for the ride or is she, are they kind of like a, you know, you know, Bonnie and Clyde sort of corporate raider types who are just like, she's like, I'll play my part, you play yours and we're going to get this deal done. But ultimately now Harper and Ethan are, you know, in their, in the money ranking are above them. But But Harper thinks we're LARPing as rich people. Yes. You know, so that's th- those are two marriages that seem to be um, at least steady in their dysfunction. Let's yes. say. Then we have Tanya and Greg. I, my sensor for like Jennifer Coolidge Coolidgeing it up a little too much, or Mike White kind of overwriting Tanya is pretty is pretty sensitive. You yeah. know, and I ha- it pinged a little bit in this episode. Oh, God, this is such a beautiful view. I wonder if anyone's ever jumped from here. How did, how did it land for you? That is like a perfect sort of calibrated Jennifer Coolidge to me. And that just sort of is like, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm so happy Tanya's here. Yeah. But then I felt until we got to her big dinner scene with Greg, I was a little bit like, okay, we're spending a lot of time on this Vespa. We're doing a lot, you know, the Monica Vitti thing, the Instagram yeah, picture. And Valentina's like calling her Peppa the Pig. That and you're like, also like, unbelievable. That's, I get that Valentina's supposed to be blunt, but like who who are we laughing at now and how are we laughing at yes. them? That's, that's my sort of. Always the eternal question with this character and this mm-hmm. performance, but also the the. I'm glad you brought up the thing of like. I wonder if anyone's jumped that sudden jolt into darkness. Yeah. Do you get Kathy Hilton in there at all? <laughs> Do I ever? It's, it's just always yeah. simmering underneath the surface for <laughs> yeah. for these yeah. women that yeah. have so much privilege, and we actually learn in this episode that Tanya's worth half a billion dollars. Yeah, she's a lot got of money. A lot of money, even more money than I think from a shipping air like she's a shipping air which feels like sort of old world almost old like, world like old fashioned yeah has a weird relationship with her deceased father who yeah. also who actually it's more Sutton if anything because they're you oh, know, yeah, the father. Yeah. we're talking real housewives by the way guys sorry <laughs> and there's a yeah. lot of overlap yeah. though because they do go on group trips and it's actually sort and of I'm it. sure Mike White watches real oh, housewives I'm absolutely yeah. sure yeah. and I feel like Tanya would fit right in with them and I will say I do I also have I think a more sensitive um, Jennifer Coolidge, maybe not as sensitive as yours, but Jennifer Coolidge, like sort of zany censor mm-hmm. um, in terms of like what are, what is she actually doing here? And I do, I did really love and appreciate her sort of meltdown at dinner with John and yeah. her being because we think that she's sort of all out here, right? That she's sort of like up in the world, you know, sort of crazy. But she she also consents that he doesn't like her. She says, "You don't like me, right? You well, you she hate says you me, hate me, which is sort of hysterical." And but, he's like, "No, I don't." It's like you're. That's a strong word. You you should push back against that word a little bit more forcefully than, no, I don't. Yeah. I mean, it, I have questions about Greg. So we open, uh, the, the, I think it's their first scene in this episode. Yes, it is, because they've mm-hmm. just woken up. Yeah. And Greg is sitting in bed, kind of staring blankly at the wall, looking troubled, mm-hmm. right? And so immediately you're like, okay, 
what's he up to? Something, something's happening. Yeah. You know, at dinner, he's like, well, I wanted you to have a perfect day before I broke the bad news, which I, I that's a convention of movies and TV that I never that really never get. never actually like, that, happens. Just do it. Don't give them the whole day and then <laughs> rip the rug out from under them. Yeah, it's only going to make it worse. And so then I'm thinking, oh, that's what Greg was worried about in the morning. That's why he was sitting in bed feeling sad because he or bad or worried or whatever he was feeling because he got this call from work and was like, shit, I have to figure out a way to kind of break her heart. Yeah, but actually... And then at the end, at the very end of the episode... Tanya wakes up, pads out to the bathroom or whatever, mm-hmm. and Greg is on the phone with someone kind of disparaging her and then saying, I love you. I love you. I think that White is a wilier, trickier writer than to be like, epi- end of episode two, Greg's a fraud. Like, yeah. I, I, I would have to imagine there's more to be developed with that. Yes. Um, because uh, it, that would seem too soon for that kind of big turn. I, I do think, and I th- you said this last week, that like while we're definitely supposed to be laughing sort of with or maybe at Tanya, it's sort of, it's sort of confusing. You can feel that like Mike White really does love this actress oh, yeah. and really loves and yeah. does love this character and that we are supposed to have some sympathy. So like, you know, seeing, you know, watching Tanya experience that moment or not experience that moment, we'll see if she does. Um, but knowing that he's probably, you know, got a, you know, either a second family or a lover or something like that. I felt a huge pang of just like, oh, oh, like, oh, she doesn't deserve this. Well, and it just reinforces why she's so weird. She's so yeah, weird because she's... she doesn't know how to love people. She doesn't know how to trust people. She doesn't know how to be alone. She's, yeah. And she is going to she's alone all the time, even when she's with people, yeah. because she doesn't know what they're there for. You know, they're either an employee or a husband that they've kind of. I mean, she the whole thing with the prenup. And he's like, and what he's saying kind of makes sense. He's like, I have to keep my job because if we get divorced. What am I'm, I'm? You know, he's an older guy. Like, what am I going to do with that job? You know, and that that makes sense to me. You oh, know, hundred percent. But I don't know. I think you're right about like Mike White. Like, he has compassion for Tanya, and and yes, he's going to bad things are going to happen to her. I have no doubt. Yeah. Bad things are going to happen to all these people. Oh I'm, yes. I'm guessing. But like, how bad is is really the question? It's trending downwards for her for sure. Well, speaking of trending, <laughs> I kind of feel like Mia and Lucia. Are trending up. Oh my God, they are. They won. If there's if there was a ranking of this week, <laughs> yeah. me and Lucia won the week. They are absolutely sitting pretty. They are. They've spend- got keys to hotel rooms. <laughs> they are spending a rich man's money yep. without any sort of you know worry in the world. And I, you know what I did? I got up and cheered. I clapped. I said, yeah. "Yes, you girls, you spend that money. You you earn this. You deserve this." Yeah. <laughs> it was actually really like empowering for me to see me and Lucia. Um, spending Dominic's money. So you get this scene with Lucia where, you know, she's clearly ambitious. She wants she wants not just to have a boyfriend for the week. She wants to get rich and yeah. autonomous and all that. Mm-hmm. And she's looking in the store window and she's like, the first thing I'm going to do is fire that bitch. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, so clearly, okay, here are the gears of Lucia's ambition turning. Yes. But we also see with Mia that, like, she's not just the sort of meek sidekick. She's like, not a wallflower. She, she has ambitions of her own that she realizes in a very small way in this episode, which is kind of cool. In an amazing way. And I I guess this is an amazing time to say that um, Mia, I love actresses. And the only thing that I love more than an actress is a singing actress. It's my favorite thing in the world. And Mia gets this wonderful song. She sings sort of ironically, the best things in life are free. You know, you spend the whole episode with her and Lucia spending money and they're drinking Aperol spritzes and they're, you know, living their sort of capitalist fantasy. And then she sings this gorgeous jazz standard Mm -hmm. about how it's actually all about the moon and the stars, and that's right. all that we need. But it's actually, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're really interesting characters in the way that they are kind of being played, you know, as the sort of 
I mean, we mentioned Rosencrantz and Guildenstern last week, but like <laughs> they're they're the sort of mischief makers. They're the they're kind of running around. You know, they've got Dominic all yeah. in his head about whatever, and but they're and, meeting other people. They're yeah. sort of connecting everybody in a way. It's that's beginning with you know the piano player. Yeah. And Lucia sees Ethan the morning right. after. Yep. Valentina is clearly annoyed with them. That was a great scene. So they're they're mischievous, but they're also, I think, you know, and maybe I'm projecting just because we've seen the last season and we know Armand and some of the other hotel staff were sort of the moral conscience of the show of that season. But like Mia and Lucia are of anyone on the series or this season, like the people you want to root for. Yes. You they know, are hundred they are I mean, it's an ensemble series, but right now my protagonists, my main girlies are Mia and Lucia. Yeah. With Dominic the way that he's looking, I mean, I don't mean to dehumanize Lucia, but like the way he's looking at her like she's a bottle of whiskey, it's like, oh, are you, you're a sex addict. Yeah, you have a problem. You, yeah. have, a, you have a literal sort of compulsion. Yeah, and we see this. when he has the girls over, you know, he swore he wouldn't do it again, and then yeah. he has not one but two over. <laughs> exactly, and it was a sort of an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> and it's this sort of bacchanal where it's like his son is like a room away or something, yeah. two rooms away. Um, that's compulsion. And so you do sort of, again, it's kind of, you know, interesting goes back to Albie, like these men or these people caught in the sort of flux of like cultural shifts and also just personal issues and whatever, where Mm -hmm. it's like Dominic wants, seems to want to get better because that's like the sort of societally appropriate thing. But it's like you maybe also need to get better because you have a problem. Because you have a problem, right? And it's not just to save your family and not just because your wife and your daughter aren't, you know, on vacation with you because of. The way that you're you are acting and sort of you know, you know, parading through society. So speaking of the DeGrassos and Lucia and Mia, um, a listener emailed us at stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com. Yep, which you can do too. Please do. Uh, the listener's name is Maddie, and she writes uh, one theory. One theory I have after the first episode is that Lucia could somehow be related. To the DeGrassos. They're in town because their family's ancestral roots are nearby. So that could be a possibility, making the Dominic's choice, making Dominic's choice to sleep with her a lot murkier. Uh, As for how related they are, of course, would be hard to guess. But obviously, the closer they are, the the more difficult the situation is. That's a fascinating theory. Yeah, I didn't know this was the House of the Dragon. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) so it's possible, you know, Sicily's not that big. It's not that big. But that would be I mean, and we don't know. Her name could be Lucia DeGrasso for all we know. We don't know. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but given what has already transpired and what looks like, because, you know, Lucia sort of spent the night the first at the end of the first episode. And it seems like it, things were sort of going in that direction at the end of the second episode. That would be, you know, we'd be heading into incest territory, which is something HBO we do. That's something that happens in, on these HBO shows. Um, I don't to me, that feels a little far fetched because I don't know if that's necessarily the story that Mike White is. I don't know how. If that's sort of in line with my overall theory of what right. this season is about. He's not so big on like conspiracy theory, whatever. There's There are going to be twists because yes. we know that at least one person or several people are dead. Yeah. But like, I don't think a dragon's going to burst out of Manette or anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ex- yes. Yeah. But I appreciate the theory, Maddie. And I, I mean, it could be true that I think I think something that we should be mindful of going forward um, is as we rewatch episodes, you and I, mm-hmm. um, there is a possibility that White is dropping little clues here and yes. so this family trip to the ancestral homeland like maybe that's just there for sort of background color on this family yeah or maybe it's there for a reason so i don't think we should like no we shouldn't dismiss it, it. and yeah. it could very well it's honestly i'm i'm 
shocked my brain didn't go there myself, yeah. honestly. I didn't consider that, but that was a good theory. Yeah, thanks, Maddie, and keep the theories coming. <laughs> Still watching? We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So Chris, uh, now we're going to hear your interview with Beatrice Grano, who plays Mia on the show. Uh, anything small we should know before we listen to this conversation? Yeah, she was absolutely lovely, and we talked a lot about her big musical moment at the end of the episode. I am so delighted to be talking to you and talking to one of the stars of White Lotus Season 2, Beatrice Grano. Thank you so much for joining me, Beatrice. Hi, I'm good. I'm good. I'm delighted to speak to you. Wow. So were you familiar with the series, The White Lotus, before you joined season two. So did you watch season one? Did you yeah, know Mike yeah, White's well, work? Like, the, series, the series was really famous. It wasn't uh, like really famous in Italy. Uh, the only mm. people that watched it were people in the, you know, in the industry because they, of course, mm-hmm. they knew about it. Uh, but when I got the audition, I watched it again. And I really loved the series. I remember when I was watching it, I was like, I can't watch this. Like, because it's just so good. Like just the idea to be in this project. It's just, this is going to break my heart. So I was yeah. like, I can't believe in this. I can't because it's so good. And I, I love the way Mike White uh, writes and the way, like the way he sees things. It's very similar to my taste. I love mm-hmm. this kind of tragic comedy and like this very beautiful moment alternates with like awkwardness and like tragic situations. And it just... I mean, I grew up with this when I did drama school in London. That was my yeah. world. I have a theater company in London as well. We do comedy. Oh, so wow. I, What's your theater company called? Uh, it's called Superglue Assembly Line. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> because, you know, the, our shows are uh, ensemble shows. And we all mm-hmm. like relate to one another. So we're all like stuck together. And also we always talk about, you know, everything that happens between taking a decision and not taking it when you're like stuck into something and you can't do yeah. it like super glue. Yeah, that's, that's such a, I mean, that's so great. It actually really dovetails really nicely into your character of Mia, who you play on White Lotus, who sort of is 
sort of stuck between decisions, deciding whether she's going to join her friend Lucia, you know, and entertain certain guests at the hotel and also, you know, is an aspiring singer. So I'd love to hear um, you talk a little bit about um, like diving into Mia and sort of how much agency do you feel that she has in her life? Is she just sort of along for the ride with Lucia or is she sort of, you know, in control? She doesn't really know what she wants. Like she loves to be, she's a dreamer at first, but then she changes her mind and then she says, I don't want to do this. But then, she, you know, she changed, she constantly like transforms into something. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was great to play a character like that because I've always dreamed of playing, you know, a, a musician and I, I've been playing the piano and singing for a long time. So for mm-hmm. me, the idea of merging these two things together was so exciting. Um, yeah. And, and I love, I love, you know, that moment in, in episode two where mm-hmm. I sit down and play the piano because I think it's the first time that you actually see some connection between me, what I love, and also with Lucia. We're like in that moment, we really support each other and there's so much sweetness. And also the, the, the song, I think it's um, yeah. the best, the best things in life are free. Yeah, in Crosby Jazz Standard. Yeah, I love that song. And have you heard of the Sam Cooke version? Yes, and the Sam Cooke version, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you should. You should <laughs> yeah, it's so beautiful. Um, oh yeah. my goodness! I, yeah, I know. I definitely want to ask you about that. I want to save that for the end because I do want to know a little bit about yeah. your your relationship with Lucia. Sort of, you know, uh, you you know, you spend all this time with sort of your best friend Lucia, who's played by Simona Tabasco. Um, nice. And yes, and I would love to know, sort of, uh, did you create like a backstory for how Mia and Lucia sort of became friends, or how they sort of, you know, got sort of became these sort of besties, if you will? Well. Um, uh... I mean, I don't, I'm not really like that. I don't always create backstories, especially mm-hmm. in this project that was a sort of a comedy and like, we just played with it. The thing is like the me and Simona, we're like, we've been friends for like in real life for 10 years. I've been oh, known wow. for years because we auditioned a long time. We met uh, at drama school a long time ago. Then <laughs> she got in, I didn't. Oh, wow. Um, Ooh, that's, that's a little testy. <laughs> then I went to London because Italy didn't want me. So I went, I went somewhere else. Italy's um, crazy. That's crazy. Then, but I went to London and I, I, I trained there. And then when I got back, I got this job and it's like an Italian series that it's really famous. It's called, mm-hmm. it's like a doctor show. And she was in the series. So I was like, Simona, I met you again. And we became <laughs> friends. Yeah. And then we became friends working together. And then we, did the self-tape together as well. Oh. Photos. And oh, together. You did that. You filmed your audition together. Crazy. Yeah. Because That's she, crazy. Yeah. She called me and she said, uh, please, I need help. Like, uh, you speak English very well. So I need help with the self-tape. And I read it and I was like, I mean, I, I auditioned for this too. Like, I'm playing Mia and you're playing Lucia. She was, that's crazy. So we did it together. It was so much fun. And we kept like thinking about it. Like, can you imagine if this happens? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But we always like said, can you imagine? Oh, let's stop. Let's stop thinking about this. This is like too beautiful. Um, oh and then my we God. got it together. And then I think that that experience of White Lotus really made us, like brought us closer. Like we became really close friends. And we used that a lot. We used that, that a lot also because we were together in this experience, like two Italian girls, like supporting each other. And that was Lucia and Mia. 
you know? I love what you just said about you and um, Lucia, you know, me and Lucia as being these outsiders, right? In this cast that's full of Americans and you and Simona are, you know, both outsiders in this cast of Americans, you know, and a lot of sort of like very famous American actors. What was that like? Was that sort of intimidating or were you like, well, I don't, you know, I'm, you know, went to London drama school and from Italy, I don't care about any of these people. Yeah. What was that dynamic like? I think, I think for me it was, I mean, I was, I was going crazy because I, you know, I love Aubrey Plaza, Michael Imperioli and mm. like Maury Abram. So I was like, is this really like, how is this happening? How am I, uh, how am I at this level? I don't know. Am I, will I be good enough? Will I be like good as good as they are? And mm-hmm. so I felt that, I felt that gap, of course. But then at one point I was like, I mean, Mike White was looking for a, an Italian girl who could play the piano and sing. And yeah. he wanted to have this kind of, you know, pure and innocent vibe at the beginning. I was like, totally. this is good for me. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, this is like, I was so lucky that he wrote the character because that was the luck moment. Because when he was writing it, he didn't know that there was an Italian girl there that was just perfect. Yeah, that was was, perfect. That moment was lucky for me. But once I got there, I was like, this is so incredible. I feel so grateful. But at the same time, you know, I'm helping this show as well. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think... um, they need you. You're you're integral. You're an integral part yes. of the class, right? There's you're, you're you're absolutely necessary. And I love I love what you just said about um, Mia being sort of like an innocent girl, at least at first, and whatnot. And you know, in the first episode, you throw a drink at the hotel pianist because yeah. he, you know, insinuates that you're a sex worker, yeah. right? And that's and which is so crazy. So she's sort of wrestling with like you know what she has to do to sort of get ahead with you know and to sort of live the life that she wants and not wanting to sort of embody the term of you know being a she says i'm you know i'm a singer i'm not a prostitute yeah um yeah can you tell me a little bit about like that sort of that yeah, juxtaposition that's sort of like that there's a two forces within her that are at odds yeah there, there's something about you know that is quite funny i think mike white kind of made that up while we're working together like this joke about my character that every time i kind of open up like mm-hmm. i want to be a singer that's my dream and on the other side, people like misunderstands it and they go, so you want to have sex? Like, yeah. oh, yes. <laughs> you're like this happy because of this. And, I, and she goes, no, I'm just being open, you know, and I'm smiling at you, the piano guy, not because I want to have sex with you, but because you're a musician and I want to be yeah. that too. And, and I think the, the thing is like, you know, when you want something really bad that you become so clumsy because you want to get there and you don't mm-hmm. think just like maybe I can do this this and this and then while you do it you just you know you turn everything apart and like Mia will do so many mess so much mess and it's like she's clumsy and she doesn't really know like she just wants to play the piano you know and I think that's so important it's like I think there's such an amazing um what Mike White does so well is that there is a class distinction right it's like Mia and Lucia there's this five-star hotel that's in their town that they're not allowed to enter. Valentina says, no, you can't come in, whatnot. And there's so much, you know, opportunity, wealth, connections in there. And if they have to, you know, go via sex work, you know, to to make their dreams come true, then why shouldn't they? I was so happy to see in this episode, you and Lucia, when you you got in, when you had that scene with Valentina and she was so mad, you know, when Dominic, Michael Imperioli puts your names on the hotel room. Can you talk to me about that? Like Valentina, the relationship between me and Lucia and Valentina and sort of, you know, you know, Lucia even says like, hey, you're a working girl. We're working girls. We're all working here. We're all trying to get ahead. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And it's it's fun because there's never judgment about it. You know, you know, mm-hmm. go, oh, these two poor, like, do you know, do you, what's the word? How do you call it? Do you say be- baby squillo? No, in English we say. Ooh, tell me, I took Italian for a minute, so uh, maybe I know this word. I don't know what to say in English, but you know, like, you know, you see a young girl, like, and she's a prostitute and you go like, oh, poor little girl she's a victim like this man mm-hmm. blah 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 but they, they just don't care and the thing is like there's no judgment whatsoever they just it's a game they're like we're gonna do this they're rich people we're like you know <laughs> it's fun it's just and it's a comedy you know thing is thing about this show is that it's a comedy and it, it, it has so much deep deep thoughts into it but at the end like like you know we we just want to have fun and we just want to entertain and i think it's it was great. It was just great to play that character. Oh, my gosh. Well, speaking of entertaining, and we did talk about this a little bit. I've got to say your number, your big piano number from episode two is so absolutely fantastic. And it is sort of ironic, right? You're singing the best things in life for free. And yet the whole episode, we see you like spending money and like, you know, like and like spending this man's money. It's sort of like it's ironic. So how did you come up with what song? How did you guys land on that song? It's sort of perfect for the episode. I, think, I mean, all the songs were Mike White's choices. And oh, wow. I'm playing I'm playing like five songs in the show uh, and they're all like you know, yeah and it was kind of related to we played it live I mean I, I played it live um, um, so it was very fun for me to like just sit down there and like play that song because it was it was a real performance because I was there like and it was really happening it wasn't pre-recorded nothing wow and I love that song because you know it's kind of like that's the moment where you see me and Lucia being a bit like superficial, like, oh, let's go in, let's go crazy, let's put on makeup. But then we have that moment, we share that moment when I sing and like, I look at Lucia and Lucia looks back at me almost like, almost like moved by the performance. Mm-hmm. So sweet. And the, the, the song says the best things in life are free, which it's basically our love we have for one another, our friendship. Mm. At the end, I think it's the mo- is is the only like it's the only spontaneous and like truthful relationship in the series. Wow, Since the that's really we're always like really close, and we always support each other. And it's, I mean, I love the fact that you know Mike wants to tell a story of like a female friendship because mm-hmm. you don't always see that. The stars belong to everyone. I mean, it was so fantastic. And I think something that viewers might not know is that um, Esty Heim, really one yes. of the Heim sisters, was a musical consultant on the show. So you worked with her on these songs. So can you please tell me, as a big Heim fan, can you tell me what that was like oh or what, God. you know, how she helped shape the, the song and the piece? She, she was everything that you see, like she she was like fundamental. And I'm, I'm really, I'm serious. Also, as a person, I am very... Um, I don't open up straight away. So when mm-hmm. like she arrived, I was like, oh my God, she's going to tell me how to do things. And I like, I didn't even know where to start. And like, I was so scared. Mm-hmm. But her personality is so special that she managed to kind of break that with me. I don't know how, 
um, and we we really connected. And I remember because I'm a folk singer, my voice it's mm-hmm. very like breathy voice. Uh, but she totally. was breathy. Breathy is a bad word. Like, well, no, just- breathy is great. It's breathy. I think your voice, and I'll tell you, I think your voice is it's it's beautiful. It's breathy. It's like you have a really great belt, but it's like lyrical. It's it's floaty. It's it's like no, it's I would it's very like, floaty. Normally, I would sing with a lot of air. She mm-hmm. was like, Beatrice, no, you're here. This is your moment. Like, you have to sing it. She said belt. She said you got to belt it out. Belt it. Because you have to, like, this is your moment. And I was like, yeah. I don't know if I can do that. She was like, yes, you can. And then, and then eventually, like, she really, like, made me see how my voice can really fly. And I was really happy about it. And also, when she arrived, you know, I'm going to say, I knew Heim Band, okay, but they're not really famous in Italy, so okay. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know the faces straight away. Totally, so, I, yeah, I so understand that. Know, That's actually very fair. So, so she arrived, and we started working together, and then like I didn't connect it straight away, and and then and then she was singing so well, and I said, "Esti, your voice is beautiful. Like you're a musician, right?" And she said, "Yeah." I have a band with my sisters and I said, Oh, that is amazing. What do you guys do? And then and then the producer Dave Bernard was there and he said, uh, Beatrice, she's from Hame Band. Do you know Hame Band? I was like, Him. What? Sort of a bit. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's so funny. And I was like, I'm so sorry, Esty. Like, I'm so sorry. Um and then That's I, an I, honest I, mistake. I That's, know. That's- and then I messaged my my uh, musician's friend back in Italy, and I said, "This happened to me today," and they were so angry at me. They were like, "How could you?" They're like, oh. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's absolutely. I think that's a, the best way to meet Esti Haim. I think that's I think that's incredible. Yeah. Well, Beatrice, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank it was you, so lovely talking to you. So amazing to talk to you. It was great. Thank you. All right, Chris, uh, now it's time for the final segment of this and every episode of Still Watching the White Lotus. Who's going to die? Just so you know, you know, uh, there is something at stake here. Yeah, there are stakes. Whoever of the two of us is right gets an Aperol Spritz. Yeah, right. And one of those big ones like they have in the show. Yeah. Those big orange ones. Which I kind of hope you win because I think they're so gross. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, I hope I win too. Maybe we could uh, alter my Maybe a Negroni Spagliato for you. I don't know. Maybe just the Spagliato. (laughs) Maybe just the Prosecco. Um, But last week, Chris, you thought it might be poor Tanya. Yes. Um, I was maybe even darker and said Mia and or Lucia, Mm -hmm. which I really, after this episode especially, I'm like, I hope that's not true. Oh, absolutely. Um, But also uh, another person has weighed in oh we have okay a we... listener named tanya coincidentally okay it wasn't <laughs> this my not, tanya this is not, not jennifer Coolidge. this is not poor shipping here is tanya this is a different tanya who listens to this podcast okay. um she wrote in about tanya uh, okay about greg. tanya does she yeah. think it's tanya well sh- uh, tanya writes uh maybe greg has a secret family and plans on murdering tanya for the money and that's why he didn't want the assistant there mm. so uh, my guess this is tanya writing is Portia saves Tanya and the three Italian-Americans get dragged into a cover-up because by that time, uh, Portia is fucking the Stanford grad. I was fucking the Stanford grad. Okay, uh, wow, that's, that's a very in-depth yeah. theory. Uh, but I, I kind of like, I mean, that would tilt this show more into like Knives Out territory. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, um, which, hey, you know, you never know. You never know. Um, but that's I, interesting, Tanya. Thank you for writing in. Yes, um, thank you for writing in. I do think that's, I think that's very interesting. I mean, I guess from this episode, we learned that like, there was a prenup intact, so I don't know how much the, mur- you know, that complicates the murdering for right. money thing a little bit. 
So I have a new theory. Okay, what's I mean, your Mike going to have a new theory every week. So that's that's fun, right? Yeah, it's fun of it. Yes. Um, based on this, you know, we kind of started this episode by talking about this very, I think, thesis-heavy conversation between Portia uh, and Albie. I don't know. I think they might kind of Ophelia together or no something. Way. Yeah, yeah. Both I don't of know. Them. Maybe Albie tries to be like the bold man and saves her from drowning or something. Okay. You know, something really tragic like that. Something, yeah. And he um, the ultimate sacrifice as a man. And it would explain why Daphne's completely, uh, seemingly unaware of these deaths. Yes, because right? she's the, not related to them at all. It's not in her circle, yeah. which again is another thing because I my updated theory comes from that moment with Cameron on the phone. I was really. Really struck by Cameron screaming about his luggage on the phone. It was very aggressive. Is he going to kill a Delta employee or something? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's going to be a, a, a Delta <laughs> stewardess. Um, but no, I actually think that we see that he's capable of rage. And, mm-hmm. and Daphne says that weird thing that he's got a long fuse, but like. Sometimes he blows up. Sometimes it's he funny. blows up. It's kind of funny. Yeah. She's like, ha ha ha. It's not a big deal. So given sort of his lascivious sort of attitude toward. Harper and their sort of on and off again thing. I was like, maybe, maybe they end up hooking up or something, and mm. somehow that ends really poorly for Harper. And that's and that's why you know her reaction is so crazy. Um, it's like, oh my god, that's my friend Harper who's oh, wow. face down in the Mediterranean. Which I mean, is I could kind of see it. Harper's trying to be adventurous. Yes, trying maybe to... she gets on a jet ski. <laughs> and those are dangerous. Yeah, you know, final day. Let me just you know like. Get my groove back, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Oh, interesting. So we're, <laughs> we're we're now we're we're really mired in tragedy. Yeah, I mean, all no. of our predictions are sad. Well, there's um, no fun prediction, is there? <laughs> no, I guess not. No, but that would be really sad, really yeah. tough. Because I I would hate to see Harper go that way, and I would hate if Cameron were responsible for Harper going. Um, but given his rage, I don't know. I could see it. Yeah, if you have any strong thoughts about who might be dead, please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Give us your theories about who those bodies in the water are. In the meantime, between uh, before next week, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rylos. Chris, where are you? And you can find me on Twitter at Christress. Anything at VF.com to plug? Not uh, basically this podcast, baby, <laughs> okay. so keep Good. listening. I like that focus. <laughs> This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our editor and producer is Dave Gonzalez, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes and Katie Rich. We had technical assistance from Scott Lee. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for episode three. Looking forward to seeing you then. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta, Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.
WPRX.